All right. Praise God. Uh, what a joy it is to see God at work in Antoine's life, and uh, what a privilege we have as a church to just see uh, how God is growing and using people uh, as they seek him and seek to serve him. And uh, speaking of that, I want to introduce you to two uh, people that uh, are special to us, and that is Ryan Hamilton and Chloe uh, Skiles. You got to woo her too, so there you go. All right. Uh, Oh, sorry, now she got more, my bad. Um, <laughs> uh, they are both going to be serving with us over the summer as interns. So uh, Ryan will be specifically working with our student ministry. He's a student at Auburn right now, and uh, he'll be working with our student ministry. And then Chloe's going to be helping with uh, submission stuff, outreach stuff, and uh, children's ministry as well. And uh, she's actually preparing to head to uh, the mission field elsewhere uh, in the coming months after that. And so uh, we're just so excited to have them. And I just wanted you to see them, and I ask you to be praying for them over the summer, and I want to pray for them now, especially you since uh, you're living with Pastor Bob. <laughs> okay, all right, let's pray. Uh, God, I just thank you for Ryan. I thank you for Chloe. I thank you for um, the fact that they love you. Uh, like uh, Antoine testified, they know who you are. They know that you are their purpose. They know that you love them. And Lord, uh, as Antoine talked about, then God, you wanna do great things in our lives and you are doing great things in their lives. You are uh, calling them, strengthening them, sharpening them. And I pray that this summer would be that for both Ryan and Chloe, that it would be an opportunity to grow uh, in their walk with you and to further discern how you might be calling them in their life. And God, also I pray that there will be fruit from their service, that they would see this summer, uh, so that it would not just be preparation for the future, but it would be uh, something that brings kingdom results right now. So God, I just pray uh, for them, pray for your protection, pray for your guidance, and God, pray that this summer is a great summer for our church, and Lord, I just pray uh, that even as we think about all that right now, as we open your word, Lord God, that we would be people uh, who are open and receptive, and that your spirit would work in us, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, thank you, guys. And uh, I would encourage you to open your Bibles to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. We'll be reading verse 28 through 34 this morning. As you find your place there, as I pray, this is going to be a busy summer. And uh, we're excited about a lot of opportunities to serve. And uh, specifically, I want to mention, uh, uh, not as well, but like uh, Gianna did, uh, our Bayshore Kids Clubs. And I want to encourage you uh, to help with those kids clubs. Uh, we have 12 locations. Uh, that we'll be basically bringing Vacation Bible School, bringing the gospel uh, into our community this summer. And so we certainly are excited about that. A lot of you uh, desire to go on a mission trip but just don't have the, the time to do that this summer. Uh, here's an opportunity to do that right in your backyard, in some cases, literally in some people's backyard. So uh, please uh, help us uh, as we seek to serve our community and bring the gospel to the community. Let me also say to you today, if you're visiting with us, that we're incredibly grateful that you're here with us, or if you're watching online for the first time, we're grateful to have you, and we would love to know who you are. If you're with us on campus, please stop by one of the um, welcome areas on your way off campus this morning and meet our Connect team there, or uh, you can text the word CONNECT to the number that's on the screen, and one of our team members will follow up with you this week. In addition to this, our Discover Bayshore lunch is today at 1215. That follows the 11 o'clock life group and service uh, time. Uh, it'll be in the fellowship hall. We'd love for you to join us. Uh, you get a free meal. You hear who we are as a church and have the opportunity to ask any questions uh, that you might have about our church family. All right, well, let's read from Mark chapter 12, verse 28 through 34. 
It says, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. I, I have six children in my house. One of those children, uh, Nate, is specifically uh, loves sports and into sports, and he always asks me tons of questions about sports and specifically about things that happen in the history of sports. And um, I'm still in my 30s, so for like three more months, but um, I am still claiming that. I'm still in my 30s, so my mind isn't fully, my memory isn't fully uh, slipping, but it does not recall uh, some of the details he asked me about, specifically when it comes to Super Bowls, but there are some moments in sports that I fondly, distinctly remember, and probably the most memorable thing I remember about the Super Bowl was this moment. We have a video to show on the screen. I'm sorry, Ely family who liked the Titans, uh, but this was when the Titans came up just this short from scoring a touchdown and winning the Super Bowl, but they did not. They lost to the Rams because even though they were so close, they were still not in. And when you think about this image, this is the image that this encounter between the scribe and Jesus leaves us with today as well. And I am concerned that this image is representative of where many who claim Christianity are today, and perhaps where some of you who are with us on campus, who are watching online, are as well. You have so much information, you're so close to the kingdom of God but you're not there. What Matthew tells us in his gospel, giving the same account of what takes place in Mark, is that the Pharisees heard that Jesus silenced the Sadducees. Matthew tells us that this scribe who was asking this question was from the Pharisees. He's likely one of the scribes who applauded the reply of Jesus to the Sadducees' question about whether we'd be married in resurrection. And the scribe is someone who knew the law. That was their job. They knew the Old Testament. They knew the law. They studied it. And they talked about how we might live it out, how we might be righteous. And having heard that Jesus answered the Sadducees well, he asked Jesus a question about the law. And it may be well that he wants to know this so that he can assess himself against that standard. He was concerned about God. He cared about righteousness and how he should live. So unlike some of the previous questions, this is a very clear question. And also unlike some of the previous questions, this is a very sincere question. And his question is, which commandment is the most important of all? Matthew tells us, Matthew chapter 22, verse 36, that he says, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, in the Old Testament, there are 613 commandments. 
and their comparative importance was a much debated issue amongst the Jewish people. So most scholars, most uh, teachers of the law had divided the Old Testament commandments into the heavy commandments and the light commandments. And so they would do this by asking how severe is the penalty for breaking this commandment? Or how great is the reward for obeying this commandment? Or how easy and simple is this commandment to do? There's an, there's an idea that everything is equal in God's law. And that's a modern idea, which is actually a departure from thousands of years of tradition interpretation of the scripture. Now, all the commandments are equal in the sense that if we don't do them, they leave us falling short of the glory and the holiness of God. But they're not equal in the, in the, the sense of their consequences, or they're not equal in the sense of the depth of our sin to get to the place where we would break those commandments. And so the scribe, for whatever reason, we don't fully know, wants to hear what Jesus has to say about this. And here's Jesus' answer, verse 29. The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first line of the Shema. The Shema was something that was very important to the Jewish people. It came from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 through 9, and essentially the Shema was Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, but it also incorporated elements of Deuteronomy 11, 13 through 21, which talk about God's blessings for loving him, and it incorporated elements of Numbers chapter 15, which describes God bringing his people out of Egypt, delivering them. And this was read every morning and evening by observant Jews. It was something that was important to parents when they thought about their children. In fact, this is a major heart of our family dedications that we're doing this evening. Tonight, uh, right here in this room, seven families will, before their church family, proclaim their commitment to raise their children to know that God is a God of salvation, that God is a God of love, and that there are, uh, there's an intentionality that is required in commandments. And we as a church have the incredible privilege of partnering with them in that. Now, I, I won't say this very often, but... I would just really encourage you to be here tonight as a church family, as we have this incredible privilege to partner with these families and their desire to raise their children to know who God is. And that was something that was important in the lives of God's people when Jesus was alive. And not only did they recite this, but they wore phylacteries. And so these were these little boxes, basically, that had the scrolls of these scriptures written in them. They're old school WWJD bracelets, basically. It reminds us uh, what would God want for us. So the Shema starts off, Jesus starts off here with the words, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, which actually literally translated is Jehovah, that's singular, singular, proper name for God, our Elohim, which is plural, Lord, is one Jehovah. So our God, who is our Lord, which is a plural word, is actually one. And so there was this emphasis on we serve one God. He is one. That's a distinct in a culture where polytheism is rampant. And there's this emphasis here on loving him, the one true God. That with our heart and with our soul and with our mind and with our strength, with means out of, so out of our heart, which was the seat of personality, out of our soul, which is the seat of conscious life, out of our mind, which is the seat of rationality, and out of our strength, which represented of our active abilities. 
This is not compartmentalization of God. It's not saying make sure all these compartments are where you love God, but it's an understanding that to love God, we must be wholeheartedly devoted to him because of who God is. You see, God is too great to be confined to a category of our life. God is too great to be confined to a category of our life. I would guarantee you that some of you, you come to church sometimes, and there's a disconnect between God and when you're working and when you're out. And I'm telling you that you don't know who God is because God is too great to not be all-consuming. God is too great to not be something that we consider and are convicted about in everything that we do. William Barclay says that the love that is conveyed in this command is a love which does three things. It is a love which dominates our emotions, which directs our thoughts, and which is the dynamic of all of our actions. So we should be disciplined as people of God and we should submit our personalities to God, transforming and becoming more like him. So we should be becoming more gentle people if that is not who we are by nature. We should be becoming more confident and secure in God in obedience to him if by nature we are anxious and insecure. We should be becoming more patient if by nature and culture we are impatient. You see, our disciplines and our routines for God are not disconnected from who we are. And who we are is not transformed, I mean, excuse me, it's not disconnected from the transformation of our disciplines. We should agree with the concepts of the Bible and be working towards those realities as far as it depends on us. And so we become generous people if we are people who believe in the word. And we become servants if we are people who believe in the word. And we desire to spread the gospel of God's amazing grace if we have experienced amazing grace. Our mental understanding and viewpoints are not disconnected from our actions. And our actions are not disconnected from our desire to be informed mentally and intellectually. There should not be a day or a part of our life where this holistic view of being God's child isn't affecting our view and our approach of everything. Jesus says this is what you need to be first and foremost concerned with. Matthew records him saying in verse 38 of chapter 22, this is the great and first commandment, to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says in verse 31 of Mark chapter 12, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is a direct quote of Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Now the Old Testament will expound upon neighbor to even include foreigners and sojourners. So it's not just your literal neighbor. But the thesis statement of this is to love your neighbor as yourself. This is not a revolutionary saying by Jesus. Others taught the importance of this. Rabbi Hillel said this, what is hateful to you, do not to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah, while the rest is complimentary. 
So it was common teaching in that day that if we wanted to obey God, we needed to love our neighbor as ourselves. But what Jesus does here is he pairs them together, the love of God and the love of our neighbor. And this is clarifying regarding his view on the law and religion and therefore how one ought to live. Jesus is saying this, if we love God, we love others. If we love God, we love others. They are woven together, being someone who loves God and being someone who loves people. So we should be passionate about learning more and more about what God wants and learning more and more about how to meet the needs of others. We gather with the church family to learn more of what God wants for our life and who he is. And at the same time, we grow in our desire to say, how can I meet the needs of these people who are my family, who are with me? We grow in our love and understanding of who God is and we grow in our desire to say, how can I use who I am and the resources I have to meet the needs of those who I work with and I live near and whatever it might be. And beyond that, we say to the world, what are the things that I can do about the needs that exist in the world? Our love for God and our love for people and desire to know more about him and desire to know more about how we can serve them are woven together. We should be more and more amazed by God's grace for us and we should be more and more gracious with others. As we understand more about God's grace for us, we have more grace with our spouse. And as we understand more and more about the depth of God's forgiveness and mercy in our lives, we have more forgiveness and mercy for those who might be struggling. And as we understand how God was patient with us, we begin to be more and more patient with those who do not know him and who are lost. And there should not be a day or a part of our life where this holistic view of being God's child isn't affecting our view and our approach to everyone and everything. Jesus says this is what is at the foundation of God's heart. Paul will expand upon this in Galatians 5, 13 and 14. And he says this to the Galatian Christians, you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We are free in Christ, free from the law, free from anything that would make us any less righteous or any more unrighteous because Jesus' blood has set us free. And yet, the scripture says that freedom isn't about saying, okay, now I can do whatever I want, but it's about God changing our wants to be like Christ. That freedom is found in Christ, and if we are in Christ, then we view people like Christ views them. You see, what Jesus did is Jesus came through. He came through for the law and the prophets. He fulfilled the law and prophets, and he did this through his love and his service. His freedom was to love and to serve. And when we live like this, it points to him. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 through 11, it says this. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 
anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The writer says, this is love, what Christ has done for you. And Christianity is a response to that. It's a response to the love of Christ. So we also ought to love one another because we have been loved by him. And this is how people know that we are his. John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35 records Jesus saying this, a new commandment I have given to you, or I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I want you to notice something in these texts. This isn't a shallow, superficial, generic, arbitrary, godless love. The text in 1 John says that God is love. So love is not God. God is love. To understand what love really is, we need to look to God, and then from that, we understand how to love people. Notice that in John chapter 13, Jesus commands us to love, not on our own terms, but as I have loved you. So when we are asking how should we love people, we remember how Christ has loved us. And so I would say with this that love corrects. There's a modern idea that to be loving is to say, leave people alone. And let people do whatever they want. But love points people to God because God is love. And if you know God and you're not pointing others to him, you are not loving. It is as if you see somebody in a nice car, but that car is on fire. They don't know that that car is on fire and you don't say anything to them to just let them burn. And you think, well, they should have known or they seemed like they were enjoying it, or their car was nicer than mine anyway. This is not loving according to our holy God. And what I would say to you is in order to engage our lives in that kind of way, where we step into situations where we know that we're gonna have to show people that they're not comfortable, that their comfort is is an excuse, or excuse me, their comfort is uh, a facade, and how they're living their lives is gonna lead to destruction on earth and eventually to destruction in eternity, even if it doesn't on earth, that's gonna cause us being a little inconvenienced. That's gonna cause us stepping outside of our comfort zone, but we know that ultimately this is what love is. Most of you are familiar with this concept. In fact, if you turn with me to Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 10, we see something that takes place after the question here by the scribe. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. 
It says there, behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Now, verse 29 says, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He, who didn't like how certain people had treated him and didn't want to love everyone, said, who is my neighbor? He who didn't like how that group of people lived their life said, but who is my neighbor? He who felt like he did enough for other people said, who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now a chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, then he set him on his animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Oh, I know, it was the priest. It was the Levite, right? <laughs> no, none of you think that. No one reads this and thinks the dude who saw the guy beaten up, but we're like, hey, we got to serve God. We got to do our things. We got to live our lives. Uh, I don't want to get involved in his situation, that those are the loving neighbors. And yet many of us live our lives that way. We know this is not the life that God has called us to, and yet we're so obsessed with our convenience, even in the name of God often, that we won't stop and help the person who needs need. We won't inconvenience ourselves. And Jesus says in verse 37, he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Jesus said, if you love your neighbor as yourself, then you should live a life of showing people mercy. And it's a life of inconvenience. It's a life of stepping out of our comfort zone. And in this instance, it's a life of serving someone who socially you're crossing boundaries to serve because you're considered enemies by most of the world. So who's your neighbor? Anyone who you have the opportunity to show mercy to. Now we have to be careful here that we don't just do things even with a selfish mentality. I notice even in the world of, of foster care and adoption that people begin to do those things and it's, it's really about ourselves and the life we want instead of really serving other people. And, and, and this makes me want to bring up something that is important from our text in Mark chapter 12. If you'll notice that Jesus says we love our neighbor as ourself. Now, I think this needs some clarification, perhaps in general, but specifically in our day, because today there's a huge emphasis in our culture on the idea of self-love. 
And so it's hard to under, for us to understand love God, love your neighbor as yourself without thinking about everything we're being bombarded with and marketed to regarding this idea of self-love. And I've heard people, even professing Christians, often say, I have to learn to love myself before I can love God and others. But what I would suggest to you is this. That's not what this text is saying. Joseph Alexander says this. The instinctive desire to promote one's own good is assumed as a reality in this text. That we are inclined to look out for our own good. That we are inclined to preserve ourselves. James Brooks says this. The statement as yourself does not justify the self-love advocated by modern psychology as necessary for a healthy self-image. It merely acknowledges that human beings do love themselves, far too much, in fact, and that God deserves as much, actually, far more. Now, this is where you might say, well, what about those who've experienced trauma and they struggle with their worth and their value and their identity. And what I would suggest to you is this, that even in most cases where there is trauma, the problem is not whether that person is focused on their self, but whether they have a healthy view of what it means to focus on their self and a healthy view of what it means to look out for themselves. And here's what I will tell you, I am pro people getting therapy, and I am pro people getting counseling, especially more and more in a day where we are being marketed to on social media about we are insufficient if we don't have whatever it may be or we don't look like whoever it may be, and it's a business, and we're just, we're just a product in that business. But if that therapy and that self-love and that care and that whatever doesn't point us to who God is, it's insufficient because here is what you and I need to know. This is how worthy we are. This is how valuable we are, that God would die on the cross so that we could be with him for all of eternity, that God would purposefully create you, that God would, with you and him in mind for all of eternity, place you on this earth, and there is nothing or no one or anything or whatever that can say you are of any value less than Christ's death on the cross. You need to know that. You need to know your identity. And any kind of therapy, any kind of recovery, any kind of help, any kind of psychology that doesn't center around that is insufficient and it will leave you insufficient. That's what's transformative. And I get the desire, sometimes we just gotta function. We just gotta keep going. And here's what I would say to you. It should not result in a life that is absorbed with yourself. And that's not just a struggle that people who've had trauma have. That's an increasing shift of everyone. Everybody know what a selfie is? If you don't, you, I don't know what to say to you at this point, but I'll explain. A selfie is when you turn your camera from looking out at other people and taking the pictures, which normal human beings did for 100 years of cameras until, and I take selfies, so if you're gonna quote all my selfies on my Facebook, that's okay, I get it, to where we now have this mode where it focuses in on us. 
I want you to imagine coming in here today and here I am, my job is to serve the Lord and to serve you by explaining what the word says. And I got up here and I just did this. But there I am. Look at me, the camera adds 10 pounds, so does pizza, it adds 10 pounds too. But uh, <laughs> there I am. I'm so happy, I, I, I wanna see my face, can I do that? Nope, I barely saw my face, it's me. But this is how so many people who claim to be Christians are living. The focus is all on us. We even come to church and we're thinking, oh, they didn't sing the songs I like. Or the pastor didn't preach the translation that I like or the temperature wasn't the temperature I like. Or they don't have the program that I, is my favorite program. And we walk away from the service not asking whether God was exalted or whether the attention was on him, but whether or not it fed us how we want to be fed. When the reality is that we should encounter the glory of God and we should always put the attention on the glory of God and then as people who put the attention on the glory of God, we then should look to serve other people. That's the life we should be living. And we're so absorbed with ourself. And, and this idea of self-care and again, I think there's some value in some of the tools, but it's become an overcorrection and an overindulgence in a life that just says, I want the attention on me. And I, I wanna give you some cl a clarifying definition because when we think about all that, I, I just, I hope this is what you think of when you think of self-care. For Christians, self-care, and I put that in quotes because I don't like that phrase, is not about getting what I deserve or what I am missing out on. Self-care is centered around being reminded of who I am in Christ and being healthy to lead others to find their identity in him. So if we're gonna use that phrase, this is what it should be for. Self-care for the Christian is not about getting what I deserve because I'm just gonna be honest with you, we deserve eternal separation from God. We deserve his wrath because we're his creatures that say, I'm gonna worship myself instead of the one who created me. So we deserve hell. So we need to stop thinking, I deserve this, I deserve this, I need this. It's not about that and it's not about, put that definition back up there, please, or what I am missing out on. Because we're always gonna be missing out on something if we open our social media newsfeed. We're always gonna be missing out on something if we look at the people who we go to church with. It's never satisfying. But self-care should be this. Who am I in Christ? I am his prized son. I am his prized daughter. He has created me to walk with him and know him for all of eternity. And so that I can lead others to find their identity in him. That's why I do soul care. That's why I do self-care. The point is more of God in my life. Because the reality is if I'm trying to be, live for God, there is no other commandment greater than these. Matthew says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. It all hangs on do I love God with everything I have? And am I loving my neighbor as myself? Am I putting their interest as much as I would put my interest? See, when we look to the law and the prophets, here's what the law and the prophets show us. They show us what it looks like to love God and our neighbor. 
and they show us when we fall short of loving God and our neighbor. That's why they're there. They say, hey, this is what it looks like if you're somebody who loves God and your neighbor, and here's what it looks like when you're not. Look at the, what the, the rest of what's said in Mark chapter 12. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to truly, excuse me, to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength and to love one neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifice. This is the only scribe who we know that favored and agreed with Jesus. And he's not saying here that sacrifice is unimportant. He's acknowledging this, the routine of the sacrificial system minus a loving heart is irrelevant to God. And here's what Jesus says. Jesus saw that he answered wisely and he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Jesus said to, says to the scribe who says, this is the greatest commandment. Love God with everything. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And here's why he says this, because he's perceiving where the scribe is coming from. The scribe is coming from, what do I need to do to meet the law? And Jesus knows that the law says you don't meet the law. And the scribe is thinking, well, how can I avoid that reality? And what I would warn you of today is this, unless our religion shows us our need for God, our religion will keep us from God. Unless our religion shows us our need for God, it will keep us from God. We might have rituals and they think, okay, I'm doing these rituals so I'm good, even though we know we fall short of the glory of God. Or, hey, I'm applying these morals that are socially acceptable to this group in this region, even though we know we don't keep the morals there even that we say we keep and we certainly don't keep the other ones that God says. Or I'm spiritual, look at me, look how charismatic I am, look how spiritual I am, look at the things I discern. Or I'm knowledgeable, I know so much about God and about the word. But we're constantly confronted when we're living in these things with the reality that we don't in fact do the things we say we believe. J. Vernon McGee says this, if you don't measure up to loving God with all your heart, and understanding and soul and strength and to loving your neighbor as yourself, then you need a savior. And here's what I know about you. If there's a God out there, you wanna be right with him. And that's why most of you, even if you're not that committed and not that spiritual, when things aren't looking good, when hospice is called in or there's an accident or something's going wrong with your kids, you start talking to that God. And you might be thinking in here, I don't know what's next, but you wanna be good with it. When I talk to people who don't know about what's next, they often say, I'm not sure what's next, but I never hear them say, I'm probably gonna burn in hell because we wanna be good with God. And the reason Jesus came to this earth, listen to me, is so that we could be good with God. He wanted people to know who God really is, not what we imagine him to be or want him to be or conclude him to be based on maybe teaching we've heard, but who he is. And here's what we realize when we see the law and we see our life. We need a merciful neighbor. We need someone to meet us in our need. You see, when, when the question is asked, who is your neighbor? The answer is everyone is your neighbor. Well, how can you love like that? 
when you realized that you were the neighbor and God took you in and God surrounded you in mercy and God put you back on your feet. And for the believer, this is something we are aware of because Jesus has come to us. Jesus tells this man, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And the message of Jesus was this, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is within reach. Mark chapter one, verse 14 and 15 tells us, after John was arrested, Jesus came in Galilee, it's the beginning of his ministry, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. See, this is what it means to be a Christian is to realize that Jesus came not from Jerusalem to Jericho, but from heaven to earth. Saw us in our need, not just to pick ourselves back up, but in our need that we could never pick ourselves back up from. And that God demonstrated his love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We have experienced the mercy of Jesus on us even though we were running from him. And as Christians, we then pour our lives back out to him because of that mercy. And that's how we can love our neighbor as ourself. May God's love for us and mercy for us transform how we live our lives as his people. Pray with me. Jesus, we thank you that you met us in our need, that you meet us in our need. And Lord, may no one leave here or turn off their computer this morning not realizing that our worth and our value and our identity is, a, is declared by God. And if there's any doubt of our worth and our identity and our value, it is assured for us on the cross of Christ that you met us when people walk by us because they're so focused on themselves. You met us, the king would come to earth. And Lord, may then we be people who look at others through the mercy of cross and love our neighbors as ourselves. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.